Hey now, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. I'm Dave Lorenzo, and today we're talking immigration. Now, there's a pretty good chance if you're watching this show, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, you know someone who's worked with or had an issue with the immigration system. Where I am right now, where I live today, Miami, Florida, I can't walk down the street without someone who's had some sort of an immigration experience. Where I grew up in New York City, I can't walk down the street without someone that's had an immigration experience. My guest today is Christina Coleman, and she's an immigration attorney. She helps people come to the United States, stay in the United States legally, and she helps some people become U.S. citizens. We're going to ask her about all of that. We're also going to ask her about you as a business owner and bringing in people with special abilities to the United States and getting them the paperwork in perfect order to stay here legally and to work with you. If immigration touches your life, like 80% of the people that are listening to this, you're not going to want to miss this episode of the Inside BS Show. Christina Coleman, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us here today. Thanks for having me, Dave. All right, Christina, so tell us what made you choose immigration law as your as your field of expertise? Why did you become an immigration attorney? It's actually quite a twisty journey. Uh, I'm originally from Canada, and I came, I immigrated to the United States. Uh, initially, I came on a student visa to attend Yale University and get a PhD in medieval English literature. And after a while, I found the research uh, a bit solitary, a bit esoteric, and decided I wanted to uh, do something a little more interactive with people. And my spouse at the time and myself were both uh, in non-immigrant visa status and we visited an immigration lawyer to talk about what our options were and about halfway through the interview we were talking about my uh, spouse and she looked at me and she said what about you what are you doing and i said well you know i'm taking a break from my phd thinking about big life choices and uh, she said you must be a good writer why don't you come and work for me for only six months it was supposed to be temporary six months stretched to five years after which time I had really kind of come to really enjoy uh, the, the process and decided I should go to, to law school. So that's, that's, how I, that's how I got to where I, where I am. You know, I find that people with a story like yours are often some of the best lawyers. And the reason, my, this is my own assumption, so it's not scientific, but the reason I think people like you make the best lawyers is because you had a whole other life before you practiced law, and this was a conscious choice you made based on how you felt about the profession. And I find that so many people go into the practice of law because they couldn't get into medical school or because they didn't know what to do when they graduated from undergrad. And you made a conscious choice to do this, and you picked this practice area with intention. So bravo for you, and bravo to any, or good for any of your clients who work with you, because it shows that you really are into what you do, and you really, you know, this is a passion for you. This is something that you, you've chosen to do, and it's your, you know, it's your vocation. It's a true vocation for you. Now, talk about how that experience of you, I guess you came, you came on a, was it a student visa? What did you, it was F1. so you came on a, you came on a student visa and then how, how did you personally find the immigration experience and how does that impact the service you provide to your clients today? 
Well, that's a great question. Uh, I actually sort of went through the alphabet soup of visas originally coming on an F1. Then I was married to my spouse who was on a J1, so I became a J2. Then I got uh, one of the infamous H1B visas back when it wasn't quite as crazy to try to get one. Uh, and we can talk a little bit more about H1B visas. And then eventually um, my spouse was doing research for the Department of Defense. So I wrote my very first uh, Extraordinary Ability Visa Waiver, which is a special program for individuals who are bringing a lot to the United States. And um, you argue that what they have to offer is so important and they're at such a, such a high level that they should be, be awarded green cards. So um, we got our green cards and then about five years later, I became a citizen. And it's, I think having been through the process, even though I'm from Canada, which is clearly not as big a jump as coming from say Asia, it's still, it's still a very anxiety inducing process. And having been through it myself, I can relate and you know definitely understand when clients Sometimes I think to uh, some of my American employees, they're like, why are they so nervous? And I was like, well, this is their whole life. And they're making long-term plans and you know, our, our work and our ability to help them is instrumental in, in where they're gonna wind up. So I do think it certainly um, has, has colored my practice and my ability to, to talk with my clients and, and help them on their journey. Sure. Sure. Now you mentioned a lot of, there's a lot of different letters in what you mentioned. So give us what the, what the regular person, the non-lawyer would consider, what would a, what would a J1 or a J2, what are they, what would they be in like layman's language? So we, we often refer to it as the alphabet soup because there's literally like 20 different kinds of visas with different names. But some of the big ones are the student one I mentioned is an F1. The J1 is for an international exchange visitor or trainee. The H1B is for a specialty occupation worker. And there's another one called an L1, which is for multinational transferees. That's another one we, we work a lot on. And then uh, E1 and E2, which is for investors, um, people people seeking to uh, make an investment in the United States um, and hire American workers. Okay, so explain to folks who are who are not familiar and folks who are listening and, and watching us, most of them are not gonna be familiar with how, just how many people from other countries come here to work to do jobs that either Americans can't do or don't wanna do, or like in the case of extraordinary ability, you know, there's there's just maybe there's maybe a dozen people who are American who could do those jobs, and we need 150 people to do it. So explain how just how prevalent that is. It, it, there's just so many. We have such a need here in the U.S. for specialized occupations or for to fill jobs that Americans won't do, and that's why the immigration process, from an employment standpoint is so important. Give us your perspective on that because you are involved in this every day and you know we just hear about it maybe on the news. So give us your perspective, please. Especially, that's a great question, especially right now with the labor shortages we're seeing. I'm talking to employers on the daily who just call me, uh, they're referred by someone and they say, great, I've got this person and I wanna bring them. And I have to give them the unhappy news that it really isn't that simple. Um, there are certain types of visas, for example, you mentioned sort of jobs that 
Americans often don't want to do, such as agricultural work. Um, there's a special type of visa for that, but they run out of them every year. Uh, it's called an H-2B. There's also an H-2A for agricultural. H-2B is for sort of seasonal workers. Um, the H-1B, which is for people who have a degree in a specialty occupation, and they have to be paid a guaranteed wage uh, that the Department of Labor sets. So it's not like you know they're coming in and being you know paid less than Americans. There are 85,000 of those available every year. Last year, there were over 300,000 applications. And this year, we're right in the middle of the lottery for H-1B for that to get one of those elusive numbers. They're predicting they're going to see half a million. There are people, they, employers just can't find enough people. And it's always been a problem, but now it has become really uh you know, at epidemic proportions, I'm, employers are so frustrated, um, and it's a tricky situation. We need some congressional action for sure. So, and that's what holds back them from issuing more. So, for example, like the H-1Bs, you could be a computer programmer, right? And an H-1B would apply to a computer programmer. There just aren't enough American computer programmers. And if we want to keep those jobs in the U.S., expanding the pool of H-1Bs that are available is the way to do it. Otherwise, you give the companies that need these programmers no choice but to outsource those jobs because you're not letting these people come in here and apply for these visas, correct? Correct. I mean, the thing that's frustrating is that I think there's maybe a misconception among the general public that employers prefer to hire H-1Bs than Americans. And that's just not true. First of all, you have to jump through a bunch of hoops. You have to pay a bunch of extra filing fees. Um, it, you, it, you know, if you can hire an American worker, it's much easier for you generally. So um, you have to go through all these extra steps. So it's it's frustrating. And you know, back uh, the H-1B visa was created, um, you know, about 40 years ago, but there was a time in the late 90s, early 2000s that they were having so much worker shortage at that time as well, they increased the number to 200,000 instead of 85,000. So there is precedent for it. Um, we're just, we haven't seen a lot of congressional action on it. I, it seems like it's a bit of a political hot potato. Our former administration leader did not care for that visa type at all. So it definitely came under a lot of attack, but that's just one area, um, you know, and you do have to have a bachelor's degree. So there's all kinds of workers that you don't need a bachelor's degree. And what about, what about uh, improving the processes for them? Right, right. Now the extraordinary ability um, exemption is something that is, has always fascinated me. But even for that, there's a huge amount of proof. There's a huge burden of proof you have to go through. So I've seen college professors have a hard time. I saw, I worked with an immigration attorney. I was close friends with an immigration attorney who handled a race car driver who, uh, who had a hard time, you know, proving that they were a person of extraordinary ability. Olympic figure skaters, you know, I mean, there's, it's just... The, the level, uh, the burden of proof is significant, and it's, it's not something where you can just say, like for the race car driver, for example, this was an internationally known individual, and this person had a hard time. This person had a difficult time, you know, getting, getting the, the extraordinary ability um, exemption. So, you know, the, the fact that these 
these opportunities exist doesn't mean that it's automatic. Explain to folks typically so that so that you can illustrate the point better than I'm kind of mealy mouth mealy mouth saying it. Explain what the process is just for let's say a, a family uh, family visa, right? So I you know I'm married and I get married in the old country. I come over and I become a citizen or something, and I want to bring my spouse. It's still a huge process. Explain what the process is for that, and then contrast that with like an H one B process, which is which is different. So the family based process usually involves, <clears throat> excuse me, what's called an immediate relative petition. And in your example, if you were a U.S. citizen and you married somebody already in the United States, you could file that immediate relative petition along with a green card application right here. No waiting. Just file the whole thing in Chicago right now. It takes about nine months and you would have you'd go to your interview and have your uh, green card. When well, the, I want to stop you there for a second. That's easy, right? That, yeah, the easy that's one the easy takes one. nine months. That's the easy the one. The easy one is still <laughs> the gestation period of a human being, right? So it's it's still not quick. Okay, go ahead, please. Uh, and uh, but if your if your spouse is abroad, you have to file that immediate relative petition first and get it approved, and they're taking almost a year, and then you have to go through a process at the embassy. So even and even countries like Canada, people always think, oh, Canada, you just kind of walk across the border. I'm like, no, I've got a, I've got a couple where one of them is in Montreal, and they've been waiting almost two years for that I-130 to be approved. It's crazy. So the, the processing can take a long time. We saw huge backlogs because of COVID at um, the embassies around the world and they're still recovering there you know the afghan crisis uh, a lot of resources were pulled off in the fall of last year they are supposed to be kind of triaging different types of cases triaging um, particularly uh, u.s citizen family members but we are seeing a long delay for all kinds of visas it has improved a little bit the situation in the ukraine obviously european embassies are helping with that so we're seeing some delays there if you sort of conversely on the other side if you um, are abroad and you have an employer here who petitions for you to get an h1b and you get selected in the lottery and then your petition gets approved then you would make an appointment at the embassy and take your approval notice and get your uh, u.s visa you get a temporary h1b visa to come into the united states and you'd be able to start work then Okay. And how long, so let's say you, you get selected in the lottery. How long does the H-1B process take? So the H-1B, because every year they run out of them, the employment is always for the beginning of the next fiscal year on the approval. And USCIS has a fiscal year that starts October 1. So for example, we are in the lottery process right now. So right now we've done what's called electronic registration. And then we'll find out who got selected. We file the petitions. We can file them. Uh, you can't file them before April 1st. You'll be 180 days. And then most of our approvals will come in August, but the individuals won't be able to enter until 10 days prior to their start date. So around September 21, 22, they can come in. Normal processing time for um, an H-1B petition is about four or five months. Often you can pay an extra $2,500 to the government and for the low, low, yeah, for that low, low fee, they will process your petition in 15 business days. 
that's not available for every petition type, but a lot of the petitions we do, um, it's a moneymaker for the U.S. Uh, immigration Service, although they still, you know, we're still hearing, oh, they're underfunded, understaffed, uh, you know, like everybody, the COVID cycle has affected them greatly. Sure, sure. Now, uh, what about students? You were you were on a student visa, so if I let's say I, I, I let's say I live in Canada and my kid gets into I don't know USC or University of Michigan or like in your case Yale, right? What do you do? Like so you you get your notice. So what did you do? You got your notice. You were accepted. And then you apply, and then you hope that it coincides with when the school year starts, or is there a time limit on that? So Canadians are probably, they're an unusual example. Canadians and uh, Barbie, uh, people from Bermuda are the only folks in the world who typically don't need an actual visa stamp in their passport. So let's choose, oh. let's choose someone from France. So you okay. apply, you get in, the university, um, all of the universities that are authorized to issue the paperwork that you need um, will usually have a good international student office that will help you. They issue the, this very um, sort of official Department of State paperwork that you need. You make your visa appointment, you get your visa, and then you can enter up to 30 days um, before your programs are no more than 30 days before your program starts. Now, this was a problem when we were seeing these huge COVID backlogs. All these students are like, my course is starting. I mean, I'm paying a lot of money to go to these schools. So one of the areas that they did uh, start triaging were F uh, and, and J, which is that international uh, exchange visitor we were talking about earlier, um, those visa types were, were prioritized, and so they, they sped those up. So that seems to have resolved. But last year, it was a real problem. And, you know, international students are, are really key, uh, not only to our economy, but this whole pipeline of bright uh, and, and motivated and, and really the, the people we want. <laughs> To move yeah, we here. want them to we want them to come here, sample our culture, and then stay rather than you know like the nuclear physicist who goes back to Iran. We we want those people staying here. Yeah, we want them working for us. And that's why the whole H one B thing is such a you know so much. Anyway, I won't get political, but if you know we want those people to stay, so they get a temporary work uh, authorization, usually for one or three years, depending on their area. And but you know they we want. Anybody who has a U.S. degree, a master's degree or, or higher should just, I think, should just be able to, to stay because we need people. I mean, you know, I'm sure everyone's read about it in the, you know, we are declining. Um, our population is declining and these are the best of the brightest of the world. And I tell you, during uh, the former administration, we saw a real chilling effect. A lot of students saying, you know what? I'll go to Canada. I'll go to England. I'll yeah. go to Australia. There's all kinds of great. I, I'm not going to come here where I'm not really wanted, and there's no runway for me to succeed. Um, so I think that's turning around, but it, it definitely I, I it was a negative so, consequence. Christina, I want you to you're gonna you're gonna do us a huge favor. In in one minute, I want you to so think about this, get your thoughts together. I want you to share with us what people have to go through to become a naturalized citizen. I mean, and I think the reason I want you to give us as much detail as you feel um, is necessary to do this, and the reason I want you to do this is because 
I want everybody who's listening, everybody who's watching to understand how fortunate those of us who are born here are that we don't have to go through this process because 90% of us, if we had to go through this process, I don't know that those of us who are born here <laughs> would be able to get through this. So you're going to give us that process in just a minute. While Christine is getting her thoughts together on that, I want to remind you that we're brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. For over 35 years, Sandrowski has provided exceptional client service to their nationwide base of businesses all around the United States. Well, that's what nationwide means, actually, Dave. Okay, thank you. Well, they work with people who are in business, so entrepreneurs, like most of you who are listening, most of you who are watching, they also work with high net worth individuals. And here's what they do. They will help reduce your tax exposure. They will also help you organize your business. And then they will help you get your business ready for sale. They will help you value your business. And then if you get into a fight with your partner or if you're in the in the throes of litigation and your lawyer needs somebody to look at the financials and to testify about the financials, Sandrowski can do that too. 35 years, that's how long they've been doing it. They can take complex financial information, break it down and make it seem simple. They can take your taxes and help you understand how you can pay less in taxes legally by either organizing your company in a certain way or taking advantage of certain deductions or restructuring the way you do certain things. They're good people. They want to help you save money, make money, and get ready for an exit event in the event you want to sell your business. Here's how you can reach them. You can reach them by calling 866-717-1607, 866-717-1607. Sandrowski Corporate Advisors is a CPA firm with a different perspective. We're also brought to you by my Revenue Roadmap Guide. If you want to build a professional practice and you want to do it in a way that is natural and takes advantage of the relationships that you have and also your thought leadership capabilities, your ability to write, your ability to speak, your ability to network with other professionals, I've got just the thing for you and it's free. Go to RevenueRoadmapGuide.com, RevenueRoadmapGuide.com, download your business development plan for your professional practice. CPAs, engineers, financial advisors, lawyers, I'm talking to you, RevenueRoadmapGuide.com, enter your contact info, download the same exact business development plan I use with my clients. I customize it for them. You can take it and customize it for you. It's my gift to you for listening and watching. Revenue Roadmap Guide. Enter your contact info. Get it for free right now. All right, Christina, it is hard. Oh, by the way, we're talking to Christina Coleman. If you want to reach out to her, she's an immigration attorney. You can reach out to her and call her at 312-933-9174. 312-933-9174. Immigration is a federal practice, so you can call her from anywhere in the United States. She's in Chicago, but, you know, Zoom works everywhere. I'm sure she'll meet with you over Zoom if you want. 312-933-9174. Christina, what does it what what is involved in becoming a naturalized US citizen? So somebody who's not born here but loves the country and wants to become a citizen, what do you have to do? Well, there's basically two ways, three ways, I guess. First, you have to become a permanent resident. So nobody leaps over and just goes right to citizenship, even if you marry a US citizen. So first you have to get yourself a green card and we can talk about the various ways one gets a green card. But once you've had your green card and you've had it for typically five years, if you've got your, um, if you are married to a US citizen, it's a three year um, requirement and you have to have been here most of the time. So we do have people who get their green cards and then kind of go back 
uh, home and then say, oh, I want to be a citizen. I'm like, you haven't been here enough. So there's a physical presence test. There's a test for continuity of residence. So you have to prove um, that you've never left the US for a long period. You have to be a resident in your jurisdiction for at least three months. You have to prove that you have paid your taxes faithfully as a resident of the United States for at least five years. You can't have any blemish on your moral character. It's called the good moral character period. Um, you know, even some uh, very minor crimes can make you ineligible during the five-year five period. So you have to sort of uh, have all your ducks in a row. Then you do have to pass a civics test, and that's 100 questions. It, it had changed, um, and it's gone back to what it was previously. So there, there were some political overtone questions kind of put in, and those were removed. So it's back. But still, I routinely give this test uh, to in, uh, high school students. We do a mini law school kind of immersion course. And most of them are pretty keen, so they get, they get all of them. But they're always saying, oh my gosh, I don't think people would pass this. Uh, so we, we give, they have to do the test, you, and you have to be interviewed. I was l literally at a naturalization interview this morning. Um, with one of my one of my clients, and it's it's always it's always wonderful when you have someone who who gets to that point. And then once you've been approved at your interview, you would go to a swearing in ceremony where you have to uh, swear to uphold the flag and do the oath of allegiance and uh, all those all those things. And it gosh, it doesn't seem that long ago that I went, but I guess it was 15 years. I was very lucky. I got to do mine at the Seventh Circuit, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was very uh, formal and and lovely, and everybody had their little flags. So it's it's actually one of my favorite case types, just because it's it's usually so so rewarding, and it's the end of a long journey for a lot of people. If um, for those of you who are listening, those of you who are watching, go on, go on YouTube and watch one of those ceremonies. If you, I don't know, and oh, actually, Christina, you can tell us. Are those there? When I lived in New York, fifteen. 20 years ago, they, it used to be there were a limited number of seats that were available like to the general public. You could go and watch a swearing in. Uh, I mean, because of COVID and stuff, I'm sure that's not the case anymore. Can, can people go and watch a ceremony live now or no? I'm not sure. It was interesting. During COVID, they were doing courtyard ceremonies and they were doing them outside. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I think, oh, wow. okay. so, so you could have gone and watched then. I am not sure, to be honest. I know they do, um, the ones in the courthouse, I believe you can, you would be able to go and watch because they, they are open courtrooms. Um, I think the ones at the actual field office, which is at 101 West Ida B. Wells, formerly known as Congress, uh, you have to, I don't think they allow any general public in there. Yeah, if you ever have a chance and you're and you want to see something really special, everybody should have to watch that. I mean, go on YouTube, see if there's one that you can find on YouTube. It is just such a special thing and you you'd be hard-pressed to find people who are who love the country more than the people who are sworn in at that moment because it's like the culmination of a long journey for them. So if you really want to be proud of America, that's that's one place where your your pride for the country will really come through because you see people who are just so happy to to finally be a part 
of something that we take we Americans take for granted. So just a, it's an incredible thing to do. Um, all right, I was Christina, just going to jump in and say that Americans, yeah, I think they think, oh, there's so much bureaucracy. And I get I have European clients frequently who naturalize. And this morning I had this German uh, client I was speaking to and I started talking about bureaucracy. And, and she said, oh, you don't even know what it's like in Europe. This is nothing like you. You guys, you complain about everything. It's so great here. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? <laughs> we got to remember yeah. that. We have to remember no that. Kidding. Uh, no, I mean, I listen, I, you're talking to a guy who gets choked up every time I go through customs and they say, welcome home. It just kind of gets me right here, <laughs> you know, so like I you don't have to tell me I'm, I'm the first one to be like, look, I'm so lucky that I didn't have to go through what these folks went through. Like they're they're just the the fact that they you know forget about their journey to get here to begin with i mean if you have never sat with someone who has immigrated to this country i'm i'm very fortunate in that living here in south florida now i know a lot of people who came to the us years ago from cuba when we had a when we had an asylum policy that was look as long as you get one foot on dry land you can stay here we're not going to send you back a lot of the people i know a lot of the people who are my friends today came under that policy relatives of my wife came under that policy and they did whatever they could to get here including you know my my wife has a uh she's actually my wife's half sister um different fathers who went through from cuba went through two countries in South America, was returned to Cuba two different times. And then on the third try, she and two friends were able to come through Mexico into the United States. And, you know, she became a productive member of society in like eight months. She was out on her own, paying rent with a great job. Um, and it, it just, it, and she is the kind of person who has a love for this country that would rival any other American. It's just an absolute incredible, uh, incredible thing. And she's in the process now, this is 15 years ago when she went through that, she's in the process of becoming a citizen now. Talk about, Christina, you mentioned a green card. Explain to folks what a green card is and what it takes to get a green card to get permanent resident status. So green cards, used to be printed on green paper, which is why they're called green cards, but they're evidence of your legal permanent residence in the United States. And there's a couple of ways, three main ways to get one, either through a family member sponsoring you, which we touched on briefly, uh, through an asylum application where you fear persecution in your home country, or through employment where your employer sponsors you those are the three chief ways. In most um, employment-based cases, you do need an employer sponsor, but there are a couple where you can sponsor yourself, such as the extraordinary ability waiver, national interest waiver is another one where if you can prove the work you're doing is of such benefit to the United States, it really behooves the U.S. to just waive. You know, we don't need to do a labor certification. We don't need to prove we couldn't find an American worker. We're just going to jump over that step and and make you a permanent resident of the United States. 
what is uh what's that what is that type of job would it be like a skilled surgeon or somebody with like special like capabilities as an engineer or something what types of roles would that apply to i mean definitely sort of the you know textbook cases i'm working on a cure for cancer uh but it it doesn't have to be i get a lot of clients or you know people uh, consults with like well i wouldn't qualify for that and i'm like well just like let's let's look at it um we have one you know we've had people doing environmental work national security i had someone who who worked on sort of these microchips that were super important to some um, defense contracts lots of uh, medical research doesn't you know doesn't have to necessarily be the biggest name uh you know disease of all time um if if you can make it tie in like right now we're really having an infrastructure crisis right in the country so if if i i actually had um you know someone who was really a business person but was bringing so much value and that's really the the emphasis when you can show there's just so much value in what this person is doing and when you can quantify it like literally this person's uh, innovations are going to save the u.s government billions of dollars Sure. Even millions of dollars. Like you, you know, so there's one of the reasons I was drawn to this area when I first, you know, started working as a, I was working as a writer at an immigration. I wrote all the national interest waivers, extraordinary ability, outstanding researcher. And every case you got to learn about a new area of, of science or medicine or whatever the person was working on. And you crafted their story. And People are always like, oh, you know, immigration law, you just fill out forms. I'm like, no, there's really a lot of room for creativity. And that is a lot of what drew me to it, just learning more about people and telling their stories. Now, t- talk about the person on the other end who's reviewing these applications. Is how much how much latitude do they have? Is there uh, is there black, you know, quote unquote, black letter law that they follow? But then do they have some wiggle room to say, eh, you know, we can fit this person in here? How, how much latitude does the does the reviewer have? There is definitely discretion. Um, no doubt. It's subjective. Uh, you want to always consider the audience you are talking to. A lot of these individuals may not even have a college degree they're trained but you you know you want to present it in a way that's very uh, attractive and persuasive there is black letter law normally so for the different kinds there are different prongs that you have to satisfy different criterion so i'll argue you know this person um you know there's eight criterion that are listed out and you kind of check off the boxes right so they've published in peer review journals but sometimes Maybe they've reviewed for a peer review journal. Maybe they've, you know, been a, a judge at a, a contest. You know, you kind of have to sort of be a little creative as to how you fit them in the box and how you use that evidence and how you talk about why that evidence is compelling. So, you know, and it's um, it's definitely an area that sometimes you will get an approval on one you thought was you know, maybe not the strongest in the world, but still good. And then you have one that you thought was fantastic. Maybe like your race car driver with, you know, all the prizes he's raced at the Monaco Grand Prix or whatever. And uh, you get what's called a request for evidence. And that's where the officer writes back and says, well, I don't think you really met all these criteria. Um, so that's always disappointing. But in general, um, you know, I, I review very carefully before I take any of these cases. They are a ton of work. Um, so we have a very good very good track record on those, but you really have to be ready. And I've had a couple of clients be like, I don't think I'm ready to do all this work. I'm like, well, come back to me when you are, because I can't do it unless you do, unless you give me stuff to work with. 
Sure, sure. Um, let's go back to citizenship real quick. The and the interview process, right? Um, have you have you seen clients who get all the way through the process and then they blow it in the interview? And what do they ask in the interview that could potentially trip them up? At, you know, because that's like the that's the end, right? That's the last step, or is it not the last? That's the last step. So, what what could they how, how could they answer in a way? That would, you know, after reviewing the forms and everything else, everything's a go and then they get interviewed. And is it inconsistency with what's on the paper that trips them up? Or is it, you know, that they say something that they don't mean and they try to take it back? How do do they get messed up in the interview? So it's interesting. You always see in movies and or on TV, everyone's like writing the test. You don't write the test anymore. You go into the interview with the civics test, and they just ask you the questions until you get six right. Um, and then if you hit oh, ten, wow. so they so you're sitting there and they're like, "Who's the seventeenth yeah. president?" You got to know. Yep. <laughs> wow. Yep. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Name a major conflict of the 1800s that the U.S. was involved in. That was one of their ones today. Um, wow. So <clears throat> you know, so you get if you need to get six out of ten. So if you get to ten and you haven't gotten six of them right and it's um so they ask those orally then they ask you have to and this was new to to me today i hadn't been to an interview for a little while i guess you read a sentence on an ipad and then you have to write the answer in english on the ipad so people fail the test people fail the english part there are exemptions for people over uh you know who are over a certain age and who've lived here a certain amount of time um oh and then the, the next part is uh, you know, are you telling the truth about all those admissibility questions? So, for example, um, were, have you, here's one of the questions, and I, neither you nor I will answer because we don't want to get ourselves in trouble, but have you ever committed a crime for which you haven't been arrested? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> of course not. Um, but so those are the, so if you go on, if you haven't had a chance to talk to an attorney, and maybe you have, maybe you, maybe you have a couple of things. Maybe you've got a DUI. Maybe you've got, you know, some kind of. So they won't say, "Oh, you can't come to the interview." They'll tell. They'll wait till you get to the interview to go over anything that's problematic with your <clears throat> case. Hopefully, you've had a lawyer go over it and be like, "Hey, Dave, you know, you had three DUIs in the last five years. You should not apply for naturalization because you will not get approved." Mm. Yeah. Not not saying that you've had to, I'm sorry. Or like, no, you know. no, I mean, yeah, that, no, I haven't been caught for that in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> convicted, never convicted. No, um, so I, that's fascinating to me that, that, that that's the way that they do it. Are there people, Christina, who try to go through this process themselves, who, you know, pro se, they, they represent themselves? Definitely, there are a lot, wow. and and if you have no blemishes and you've you've never done anything wrong, and you have a very good grasp of the English language, you can do it yourself. Um, but you know, if it seems like a comp, it seems like flying a plane yourself. I mean, I guess I could <laughs> do it if I watched enough YouTube videos and went through enough simulations, but I wouldn't want to try. Like it's it's just there's too many moving parts. It's just too much. It definitely, I mean, certainly the naturalization piece at, you know, and it, that's actually the easiest part. It's, it's getting the, the uh, permanent resident status that is, is much more challenging and takes much, and some cases can take years and years and years. Um, so there's definitely, and it's always changing. Uh, you know, they, there was a whole situation where when people would go to apply for driver's licenses, they would instruct people, hey, you should register to vote while you're here. 
Well, they're telling everybody this, no matter what ID they give them. So if I, if you present a green card to me as I'm the DMV employee and I say, oh, you should register to vote. Oh, you shouldn't. You can't. You yeah. can't vote. And if right. you say yes, you can't, you're not eligible to become a citizen because you have made a false claim to U.S. citizenship. And there's been a lot of litigation and this has become, uh, you know, they, they've actually started trying to backtrack that a little bit, but it's, it's you know, something inadvertent that you might have done that you don't even aware, you're not even aware of. It, it can be a trap for the unwary. So although I think, you know, some people can handle it, the naturalization piece on their own, I get the occasional person who comes to me and says, oh, I got a request from Evan, can you help me now? And I'm like, well, you probably shouldn't have written, like, check that box without talking to an attorney. And now you're kind of uh, in a bad, in a bad situation. So. Yeah, it's a really, that's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. You know, the, the one thing that used to be the big fear of people who, um, so let, let me actually, let me, let me give you some context for this next question, because it's going to sound a little strange unless I give you some context. So, um, in 1989, I uh, was a housekeeping manager in a hotel, and I kind of grew up in the hospitality industry. And if you think back to, to the 1980s, one of the things that was, I don't want to say common, but if you were in um, a, you know, a community of non-U.S. Uh, citizens, one of the things that was really common was what was called a business marriage, where people would marry uh, people, either citizens or people who had, I guess, permanent resident status, you can correct me if I'm wrong, would marry people who were undocumented and then use that marriage as a way to, you know, uh, get permanent resident status. So the fear of those people, of the people, and listen, 1989, statute of limitations is up. So I'm going to tell you that we had more than one person that worked with us that was in this situation. Their biggest fear at that time was like a home visit. Like immigration was going to come and do a home visit and see that there was no, like in the case of a female, there were no male clothes in the apartment. There were only female clothes there. Um, or they were going to do a home visit and, you know, they wouldn't be able to answer questions about each other, that sort of thing. Does that still happen? That was, And this is, by the way, this was a, this was like the thing that kept folks up at night. Does that sort of thing still happen? And does the, does uh, Immigration and Naturalization Service or Immigration and Customs uh, now, I guess it is, do they do home visits now in those cases? It's funny. I remember that horrible movie from the 90s with uh, Andy McDowell and Gerard Depardieu, green card. And they, you know, they do that thing where they test them on what kind of toothpaste do you use? And I always say to clients in general, I personally have not had any clients that have had home visits. However, I think there are certain red flags that could prompt a home visit. Normally, if you go to the interview and you're not being super persuasive that you are a real couple. And I only, you know, I definitely interview all of my uh, cases before. And I've, I have turned one couple away because I didn't think they were a real marriage. Um, you know, having, having been married and not married anymore, I don't recommend anybody ever gets married. But if you're going to get married, make sure you're getting married for love. Uh, and I say that to every client. I, I don't, you know, but um, they will separate you and start to ask you some of those questions. To be honest, I'm not aware that they do home visits anymore, but I was watching, I don't know, some TV show where there was a home visit. I'm like, do they really still do this? Um, so they they may. Uh, it, it may be more of a, you know, certain targeted populations. So um, 
And it's funny that you called it INS. It took me so long to, it was INS for so long, and now it's USCIS. It took me years to stop saying INS. Well, I mean, honestly, Christina, here in here in South Miami, it's still La Migra. It does, they didn't change that. <laughs> you know, it's still the same in Spanish. They, they didn't change what they call it in Spanish. All right, so... Um, the uh, the the last thing I, I really just want to want to touch on today is I'm an employer, let's say, and I you know I uh, work in a diverse area. Um, there are certain requirements that I need to uh, I need to fulfill in order to in order to be compliant with the law. So I have to you know I have to have proof that somebody's legal to work in the United States. What what is there? Beyond the typical paperwork, like the I nine paperwork and that sort of thing, is there any other, is there anything else that I should be concerned about as an employer from an immigration perspective? What is my what is the burden on the employer if all the paperwork is in order? Am I am I fine? Like as long as I like, is it like a see no evil, hear no evil thing for an employer, or what is the burden on the employer? So if you've properly completed an I nine for each employee, and you have to, you you are allowed to accept documents on their face. However, if 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 it could be said that the document should have prompted you reasonable suspicion, I mean, if it if someone gives you a fake document, but it's a good fake. You're, you should be fine. But if it's, you know, some kind of obviously jimmied <laughs> uh, fake card, then you do have some responsibility. But in general, if you've accepted the documents uh, and it's a, it's a good faith effort to comply, now what we do see a lot of is um, Social Security will run numbers um, like every now and then from your tax returns and you'll get what's called a mismatch letter that says, hey, you know, you have... 500 employees and we ran all the numbers and a hundred of them, the social security numbers don't match and you're going to have to re-review their documents. Uh, and perhaps there was a typo, perhaps someone, I love it. perhaps someone presented the wrong document, but in general, it's like, you're gonna have to let these people go. Uh, otherwise you face uh, fines. Um, there, the wage and hour division is uh, part of the Department of Labor that'll come around and make sure that people are, you know, paying the wages they're supposed to, posting things they're supposed to. And there are pretty significant fines involved for non-compliance. So, you know, if you have H-1B workers, there are different rules. So you definitely want to, you know, make sure that if, if you, Dave, have a good HR person that they're working closely with their immigration attorney to make sure the I-9s are done and, and you know, there's expiry dates. Um, you know, sometimes you have to ask for a new card. Sometimes you don't. There's a, a lot of different rules about how that all works. But yeah, it's sort of an ongoing. Okay, great. So now, Christina, I want you to think of three things that people should take away from our time together today. Three things you want everyone to remember that we discussed or even three things that we didn't discuss that you just thought of and you were like, oh, we should have talked about these three things. We'll talk about them now. All right, so come up with three things. I'll give you a minute to think about that. And I want to remind you that if you're listening to this or you're watching this, we love your comments. So down below where the description is, there should be a place for comments, whether it's on YouTube or whether it's in uh, iTunes or Spotify, wherever. Leave us a comment on the show, even if it's just to say, hey, now, thanks for the great show. We love your comments. We love your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. So if you like the show, give us a thumbs up. Leave a comment down below. 
Our show is brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. You heard me talk about them. If you need help with your accounting, you want someone to look over your books, you want someone to help you save money on your taxes, you've got a litigation matter, and you want someone to do a business valuation or a forensic audit of financials that you're involved in, all you need to do is call 866-717-1607-866-717-1607. Sandrowski Corporate Advisors is a CPA firm with a different perspective. Go get your Revenue Roadmap Guide. If you haven't done it by now, pause the show, go to revenueroadmapguide.com, enter your contact info, get your free business development plan. It'll help you build a business in a natural way that's easy for you, that doesn't require cold calling, it doesn't require any bus bench advertising or anything icky or uncomfortable. It's the same guide I use with my clients, Revenue Roadmap Guide. It's free. It's my gift to you. Christina Coleman is our guest. You can reach out to her for your immigration needs at 312-933-9174, 312-933-9174. Her email address and her website is also down below in the show notes. Okay, Christina, what are the three things we should take away from our time together today? All right, these are my top tips. And actually, I don't know if we talked about any of them, but it comes up all the time. So I just, this is more of a PSA. When you enter the United States, you will have a valid visa generally in your passport. However, when you go through the airport or however you come in, the officer will generate what is called an I-94 record. That is what governs your period of stay. Even if your visa is for five years, if your I-94 is for six months, that's how long you get to stay here. If you stay longer than that I-94, you will run into trouble. You can pull that record online, so every time you enter the US, Pull your I-94, make note of the date, and keep a copy. And to that end, my second tip, keep records of everything. You can't rely on other people to keep your records for you. Always make sure you make copies of everything, scan them, PDF, put them in your drawer. Make sure you always have copies. And my third tip is that immigration is a long journey. Sit down with someone and come up with your strategy. You're going to have to plan ahead. Often it will be years and years until you get where you want to be. And you don't want to waste time. You don't want to go down roads and processes that don't make sense for where you are. So try to find yourself a good guide to help you along the way. All right. Those are three great tips. Christina, will you send me a link to the to the website where people can pull their I-94 information? Okay. Christina's going to send that to me and I'll put it down in the show notes. So if you're listening to the show and you're like, oh, I-94, I'm... You can literally Google I-94 record and it will come up. It's the Customs and Border Protection CBP, but I will also send it to you. But um, yes, it's it's pretty easy to find on Google, but I'll send it to you too. So people should definitely... I appreciate it. We'll put it. it down in the show notes so people can look and check it out. I didn't even I didn't even know that was a thing. So thank goodness you mentioned it. Those are three great tips. It has been a great 50 minutes. It went by like that. Thank you so much, Christina, for for joining us today. You are a wealth of information. It was wonderful to have you. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Alrighty, folks, we were talking to Christina Coleman. She's an immigration attorney. If you have any questions or you need her help, I want you to call her at 312-933-9174, 312-933-9174. That'll do it for this episode of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo. We are here every day with a brand new interview. Today, we had a masterclass on immigration 
Want to know what's going to be here tomorrow? Well, you got to come back tomorrow and see what's going to be here. We can't wait to see you back here again tomorrow. Until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.